It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz. Thank you so much for joining us again. We got a great lineup of people here. You're actually going to hear a story from my daughter, our daughter, my wife and I. We've got uh, three kids, but one of our daughters served as a page in the United States Senate. I think you're going to like to hear this uh, pretty humorous story from her. And then we've got uh, one of the most influential people in the United States Senate, certainly one of the most influential people in the conservative movement in Senator Mike Lee from the great state of Utah. He and I go way back. We've had a lot of our friendship for a long time. We've worked together. And uh, I think you're really going to like hearing about Mike Lee and growing up and hearing stories and things from him that you will never hear any other setting other than the Jason in the House podcast because we get to people's backgrounds and why they think what they think, the experiences that they had that really inform them. And I think you're going to really enjoy it when we uh, we phone the friends. And, of course, we're going to highlight the stupid because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. So we want to kick things off before we get to the full conversation with Senator Mike Lee. want to give just a little riff on uh, on the news and things that are happening here because um, i just give you a little perspective and just for a few minutes, and then we'll bring on the stupid. So the topic this week I want to talk about is immigration. You know, I got to tell you, a lot of people are concerned about the direction that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are taking on the immigration front. Um, immigration was one of those tough, difficult issues. Um, but you know what? There needs to be the rule of law. It's interesting to me that the people that are fleeing these countries trying to come to the United States of America, I first of all believe we have a higher moral obligation to the people that are trying to do it legally and lawfully. And legally and lawfully, we bring in about 1 million people a year. That is a huge amount. It's more than all the other countries in the world combined. And part of my experience here is when I was elected to the Congress in 2008, I served on this on the House Judiciary Committee uh, for eight and a half years, and I was on the Immigration Subcommittee for part of that time. I remember when the Democrats had the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and Zoe Lofgren, the congresswoman out of California, was the chairwoman of the subcommittee. Well, for two years, when the Democrats had control, guess what? They did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. We literally had one meeting on the Immigration Subcommittee to take a picture and another meeting to hear testimony from Stephen Colbert. That's how seriously the Democrats took it. So they had a chance to fix it, to do things and do it right, but they didn't. I think most people agreed that there needed to be some reforms, but you got to live within the law. So Republicans take control, and we actually did, I think, a number of things that helped strengthen the idea that you need to come in through the front door, not through the back door, that we got to get rid of the rewards and incentives to come here illegally, that there are legal lawful ways that you can come, and there's a whole array of those. But what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are doing today is, I think, a way to subvert the law, to take advantage of the law. 
You remember, it was under Barack Obama and Joe Biden that they changed the definition. And I, I don't want to get too nerdy on you here, but you, they changed the definition of credible fear. Credible fear is a standard that was set in the law that allowed people to claim asylum to come to this country. Now, if you're going to come to this country and claim asylum, it used to be that you couldn't say, well, it was for economic reasons. Or it's because, you know, my boyfriend's beating me up. Or um, it, it, those things would not fly. But they systematically started to change those under the Obama-Biden to pretty much almost anything goes. You can say that I'm being discriminated against. Well, in the past, that was not the legal standard in order to claim asylum and successfully get through asylum. And so... What people figured out that they could do is just come here and that under Biden and Harris, they're not going to deport you. Now, I think Donald Trump was actually doing the right thing on the border, securing the wall, working with Mexico, having people detained there until they go through the adjudication process to see if they meet the legal lawful standard. But that's changed. Now, here's the big question, because I could go on and on about immigration. But I think the big question that needs to be asked that nobody seems to have asked Biden and Harris, and granted, Kamala Harris, who's supposedly in charge of the border, doesn't take any questions, doesn't go to the border, doesn't do anything to make herself publicly available. But the question that should be asked by our society, by our country as a whole is, okay, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, president and vice president, you have a catch and release policy, something that Donald Trump had gotten rid of. So somebody comes here illegally, or maybe they come here and claim asylum, but need to go through the adjudication process in order to determine as to whether or not that is a legal, lawful asylum claim. When you just release them out into the homeland, the big question should be, what are those people supposed to do for food, for shelter, for a job? What are they supposed to do for medicine and education and all these other things? Because right now they are le releasing it by the thousands, what will be hundreds of thousands. And if you look at the trajectory over the next four years, it could be millions of people. Well, if they're here and they're either illegal but released into the, into the country or they're claiming asylum but haven't gone through the process, what do they do for food and shelter and money and everything else? I think the answer is, unfortunately, they, Biden and Harris, are going to give them paperwork so they can compete with Americans for jobs. Now, that to me is just so fundamentally wrong. You have people that are out there claiming welfare, want to be on food stamps, getting all these benefits that we, the American people, pay, and yet they aren't willing or going to work because they're having a hard time finding a job? Well, then why would you add hundreds of thousands of additional people into the workplace when you think that there's not enough jobs for the people that are out there? That's the big problem. That's the big question. I think when people start to realize and understand, oh, we need to be compassionate. Oh, we need to be nice. Well, what about your neighbor who can't go find a job because now Biden and Harris have essentially invited people here to come work and take those jobs? That's, that's, that has not been fully flushed out. And there's got to be a compassionate way to deal with it. These are human beings. I, I get that. But you know what? Throwing more money to Guatemala and giving more foreign aid and blaming it on, on climate 
that those aren't real answers. They're not even at, they're not even answering the real questions that are out there. And again, I think we have a bigger, broader moral obligation to those people that are coming here legally and lawfully. And for that, that's my riff on the news and one of the issues that is plaguing our plaguing our country that we must deal with it. All right. Time to bring on the stupid. Because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. So this week it takes us to Michigan, where we have some neighbors. They're um, they're maybe not getting along as well as they should, and so they have a dispute over their their uh, property line and what's going on in the property line. So one of the people decides to build a 250 foot wall of manure. Now he's arguing that it's a compost wall and that it's very, you know, biologically safe and all of that sort of thing. But you got two people warring there in Michigan and the solution that the one neighbor comes up with is a 250 foot wall of manure. That's got to be great for both neighbors. That seems pretty stupid. But I have a contender. I have another one. This one comes out of the villages. This is the villages in Florida. I've been there. Love it. People are so nice there. But according to thesmokinggun.com, we did have a 77-year-old retiree, allegedly, who was a little upset about the thickness of the tomato on her Whopper at the Burger King. Now, I got to tell you, I like Whoppers. Anybody who's met me, looked at me, knows that I eat a lot of Whoppers. (sighs) She decided that the thickness of the tomato on the Whopper was just not right. Decided to throw the sandwich at the Burger King employee. And if that wasn't enough, started throwing out all these racial slurs. The police had to come step in and actually make an arrest. And that, to me, is just stupid. Somebody's always doing something stupid somewhere. Take a deep breath. Eat the Whopper. It's good. Enjoy it. All right. Now it's time to phone a friend because uh, this friend happens to be a relative of ours. Um, She happens to be our daughter. So let's call our daughter, Ellis, who served as a page in the United States Senate because she's got a fun story to share. Hello? Hey, Ellis, this is your dad. How are you? Hi, dad. Good. How are you? Good, good, good. All right. So you and I were talking and laughing the other day because uh, our, our daughter, Ellis, had the, a great opportunity to serve as a page in the United States Senate. And so we were laughing about some of those experiences. And there was something that happened to one of her colleagues that I just thought, when we talk about what really goes on in Congress, this might be a fun story. So Ellis, in your own words, Tell them that story, tell everybody the story about when that page was a little bit nervous, but was asked to do something for a senator and it didn't quite go maybe the way the senator thought it was going to go. Yes. Oh my gosh. This is one of my favorite, favorite memories. So yes, I was a teenager. This was like the most prestigious job a teenager could get. So the pressure was on to do a good job. So um, one of our tasks as a Senate page was to do, um, to get them their drink when a Senator came onto the, on the Senate floor. 
And the senators were as picky as could be. There was like a full chart um, that had each senator's name and everything that they would like. Some wanted water with ice. Some wanted a certain soda with crushed ice. Some wanted coffee with extra sugar. Like they, they knew what they wanted. So this one kid, he was very, you know, he had this one task. He was really nervous. He, you know, set out to, to do his job. And the Senator that he was supposed to get a drink for, it said on the list that he wanted ice with his water, which was a pretty, you know, less picky of a Senator's choice. Anyway, the other, the kid, the Senate page, he goes into the back room to get, um, get the iced water. And when he gets there, there's no ice left in the ice machine. And I can just imagine the, the stress that he felt. He was probably so nervous, like thinking he's going to lose his internship over this drink. So he panics and he goes and there's a sink, this like nasty sink that was full of ice. Like someone probably just dumped out an ice chest or something. I have no idea why, but there was a bunch of ice at the bottom of this nasty sink. And so he goes and he gets the cup and he fills the cup full of that disgusting ice and then fills the bo- fills the cup up with water and then goes and gives it to the senator and he was like shaking in his boots while telling us the story he's like i just can't believe i didn't know what to do and, I'd uh, love that anyway, story because we never laugh. we never did this over in the house. You don't get pages to get you drinks when you're in the people's house <laughs> over in the House of Representatives. United States Senate is rolling a little different. Oh and you now you were telling me who was the nicest <laughs> senator? Who was the nicest one? Okay, by far, I hands down Senator Thune. He was so nice because yes, as a Senate page, you're the, like the youngest employee. You're really intimidated and. The reason why he was the nicest wasn't because he did any like grand gestures of kindness, but every time he came through the Senate onto the Senate floor and we would hold the doors open, he was, at least from my memory, he was the only one that said thank you. And he said it every time and it went a long way. Like it made me, you know, feel like someone at least noticed us and were grateful that we were there and he'd come and chat with us too if we were you know, had some downtime and it was funny how many senators would never say thank you. Like the whole time we were there, never said thank you for, for uh, getting them, you know, nasty water with ice or opening the doors for them. But yeah, Senator Thune, he was, he was awesome. All right. Well, it takes a senator from the, the good state of South Dakota to step up. And so John Thune, thanks for taking care of our daughter, but also those other pages there and just having some human decency of saying thank you. All right, Ellis, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Again, that was our daughter who served. uh, I'm just so proud of her. She's just such a great girl, and I'm glad she's had experiences, and she is one of the most fun kids you could ever be around. But she's married, has kids now, and doing her own thing, and we're so proud of her and love her, and I appreciate her sharing that story. I hope you enjoyed it. But now it's time to bring on... Senator Mike Lee, one of the most uh, conservative people in the United States Senate, certainly one of the most important voices in the conservative movement. 
he is a player, particularly on the Judiciary Committee, where he pours his heart and soul into that, but so many other issues. You see him regularly on Fox News and other places. Um, I'm proud of the work that he's been doing there as a United States senator. So let's uh, let's dial up Senator Mike Lee from Utah. Hello, Mike Lee, Senator. This is Jason Chaffetz. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you, Jason? You know what? I really do appreciate it. Everybody who's listening needs to know I've known Mike Lee for uh, a number of years. And uh, before he became Senator Mike Lee, uh, he he was Mike Lee and he, he was uh, a, a prosecutor, federal prosecutor there in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I think when I first got to know him, but even before that, I got to know him uh, and his dad. And you know what? Mike Lee as the senator, is one of the most outspoken advocates of the United States Constitution that I, that there is. And he's willing to stand on principle no matter where the wind's blowing. And I think that's what so many people love about him. So I'm thrilled to have you here. And really what I want to do today, Senator, if I could, is go back to, you know, your growing up, your dad, Rex Lee, his amazing, you know, a lot of people don't know about his history and then bring us up to the present day. And I, th- I think if when you hear Mike Lee's story, I think you'll be impressed and understand why he is one of the best advocates for the Constitution and a constitutional government uh, that there is. So, again, Senator, thanks for, for being here and, and go back into the day when you were born. Tell us, bring us back to that day and, and set the scene for us and what was happening with particularly your dad, Rexley. Yeah, so I, I, I really uh, learned to appreciate government at, at a young age, mostly just by going to court with my dad. I, and I started going to court with my dad because it was a good way to miss school. I, I thought it was more entertaining than going to school some days. And my parents would let me leave school for pretty much that reason and no other. They, they thought, well, well, that'd be good. You learned something. And I usually did. So well, how old were you back then? I, like, what's your like? What's your first memory of that? Um, but ten, I was uh, I, I was ten when I first went with my dad to court. It felt at first sort of like going to church in a foreign language. You had to sit really still. Uh, people <laughs> were saying stuff. You could tell it was important, but you didn't really know what they were saying. And um, it, it, you know, once in a while, the uh, the ushers at the Supreme Court would would come by and they would tell you to sit up if you were slouching just a little bit because they meant business uh, uh when it came to decorum in the court kind of interesting but little by little now, i started so, to understand it and then but, i started but, to like it. but let's also understand here when you say go to court this isn't like you're going in front of judge judy uh you know adjudicating some parking ticket here you're talking about going to the United States Supreme Court, which is a little different than most 10-year-old kids when they're going to go watch Dad. And that's a fair point. That, that, that was the tribunal in question. He happened to be arguing in front of that one. He, my dad at the time was serving as the Solicitor General for President Reagan. And the Solicitor General is the officer of the federal government assigned to represent the United States government uh, in in the Supreme Court of the United States. So that's what he was doing there. I didn't know much difference. All I knew is that it didn't look like it looked on TV. 
On the one hand, the Supreme Court is more beautiful than just about any other court you'll ever visit. On the other hand, it doesn't operate the way that courts are depicted as operating on TV. There's no jury. There are no witnesses because it's it's all, you know, in an appellate posture. Uh, somebody's already won and somebody's already lost. They're just deciding what to do about it after the fact. And so that's why there's a little bit less drama and hence the feeling that it's sort of like going to church in a foreign language. Okay, so now you're, you're in Washington, D.C. Your dad's the Solicitor General for for President Reagan. Uh, he argues, it had to be, was it more than 100 cases before the Supreme Court? Is that right? No, during his lifetime, he argued a total of 59 cases 59 before cases. the court. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I remember that in part because he always wanted to have argued as many cases in front of the Supreme Court as years he had lived on the earth. And he died 25 years ago. Uh, he died mm. just a few days after he turned 61, after a heroic battle with cancer. And even as I was wheeling him into the hospital um, uh, for the last time, and we were relatively certain that he wouldn't make it out, um, I was by then a second-year law student. I could hear him mumbling under his breath. By then, I, I understood what he was saying. And he was... He, he was preparing for two more arguments in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, arguments that he, of course, uh, was not um, fortunate enough to live long enough to present. But I was proud of him for trying nonetheless. Well, okay, so you're, you're in Washington, D.C. Uh, you have some siblings, and you have a very interesting neighbor who uh, uh, everybody came to know. So tell us about your, particularly Tom, because he's, uh, he's what he's doing. Uh, and then just kind of walk us through your family and, and your neighbor there who's uh, notorious in his own right. Well, which neighbor? Are you talking about Harry? Yeah, Harry. Yeah. Okay, so um, after uh, when, I was, when I was in the sixth grade, there was a guy named Harry Reid who got himself elected to the United States House of Representatives. Harry Reid um, got elected from Nevada. He, he, he moved in. Um, uh, pretty close to where we lived. And he was a member of our church congregation and his son, Josh became my best friend. And, um, after I became friends with Josh, I was hanging out at Josh's house one time and I knew his dad was in Congress, but I didn't really, um, stop to think about the possibility that he might be anything other than, uh, a Republican. I mean, after all, they were from the West. We were from the West. We were Republicans. Why wouldn't they be? But, uh, as it turned out, they were Democrats and got to know them really well. Uh, they were a fascinating uh, uh, family, but more than anything, they were a wonderful family. Very good to me. And um, uh, I, I went on trips with them, uh, slept over at their house all the time. Uh, we, the, we, we spent countless hours together over the course of the many years. On, on one occasion, Harry was really funny. And on one occasion, he decided as a prank to jo- to lock me and Josh in the garage just to see what we would do, to see, you know, if we'd figure out a way out of the garage. It took us a while. How old My wife, you? Um, yeah, let's see, by then I was maybe 12. Uh, but um, my, my wife wonders out loud sometimes whether Harry accidentally sparked my political career by being a prominent Democrat who locked me in a garage, thus 
creating some uh, weird sort of desire on my part to escape democratic hegemony in the United States government. Well, you obviously got out of that garage, um, and you're obviously very conservative, even though you've had some pretty liberal friends there in the neighborhood. And, you know, being Washington, D.C. is probably even more liberal in general anyway. But what is it about your background? What is it about you growing up that just gave you this this conservative backbone that we just don't see in most? Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I, um, I think I, we were certainly taught as, as kids that, um, not everybody would think like us. Not everybody would believe what we believed. Most of that came, I think from our, our religious instruction and upbringing. Um, when, uh, when my family moved to, um, the Washington DC area, Northern Virginia, uh, I, I had just finished the fourth grade and I, I had come from Provo, Utah, uh, where I, where I now, uh, live today. And things were a little bit different in suburban Washington, DC than they were in Provo, Utah. I had come from an overwhelmingly Mormon community. I, uh, I and so as a, as a Mormon kid, I hadn't been around a lot of others who didn't share my views. And I think my parents, sort of prepared us for that by just saying, hey, look, uh, you'll be around a lot of people who don't think like you do. Just remember to stay who you are and don't let others convince you that um, that you're inferior. Don't, don't think that you're any better or any worse than anyone else, but be who you are and be true to that. And I think I took that fairly literally. And I think that transferred quite unintentionally on my parents' part. I don't think they thought they were turning me into a conservative necessarily. Um, but, uh, I think that had an impact. I was used to being different, uh, used to facing, um, disagreement when I expressed my views and that transferred into that. But on top of all this, I think the biggest thing that they did perhaps unintentionally to turn me into a, um, into a, uh, an advocate of conservative, uh, policy is that they taught me about the Constitution. Um, my dad, uh, in addition to being a lawyer, was also a, a professor of law, and he taught constitutional law. They talked to us a lot about the Constitution, and my dad talked a lot in particular about federalism and separation of powers and about the fact that the structural Constitution, the vertical protection we call federalism, the horizontal protection we call separation of powers, those are especially important. Those are unusually key to everything else we do uh, under the ban of the Constitution. And they taught me to stand by that. So I think that's that's certainly what motivated me to run was that instruction I received about the Constitution around the dinner table. I think I was uh, 30 before I realized not every family discusses the presentment clause uh, over potatoes, but uh, uh, we did. And, and, and your brother, Tom, is on the Utah State Supreme Court. Um, and uh, I mean... I, I, the way it's been explained to me about the Lee family is that you all do some stuff that um, maybe most families don't do, and your love of the law is just unrivaled. Now, wh when I first came out of Congress, I was leaving. I needed to set up this LLC just to give you uh, folks at home a, a perspective of the the depths of which the Lee family uh, embraces the law. 
So I ask, I don't know if you remember this, Mike, but um, I asked you for a reference to have an attorney in Utah. I was just setting up a little LLC, a limited liability company. And and uh, so you referred me to, I believe the guy's name is Steve Sargent. And Steve had like been a clerk for Justice Rehnquist. I mean, this guy's resume was pretty thick. And uh, I'm talking to him. I said, yeah, Mike Lee referred me to you. And he said, yeah. He said, and, and so we got around to talking about your love of the law. And evidently you and Tom and your wives were going to go with Steve Sargent down to Lake Powell. Do you remember this and what you asked Steve Sargent to do? Because I think there may have been another couple or two, but Steve was a little surprised going down to Lake Powell on the houseboat the week with the Lees when a whole big, big stack of papers arrived and he was asked to start reviewing the Supreme Court cases because on the houseboat trip out on Lake Powell, you all were going to sit back and just... Um, argue Supreme Court cases and be prepared because you don't know if you're going to be which side of the uh, equation you're going to be on to argue these cases. But not everybody does vacations well, like you guys do. Well, Jason, as you know, well, everyone who goes to Lake Powell does that. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's as, just as ordinary as, as water skiing uh, or, 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 or preparing by bringing suntan lotion. Look, the, uh, the story from Steve Sargent, a fantastic lawyer, by the way. I uh, uh, really like him. story from Steve, Steve Sargent may have gotten exaggerated along the way because I don't, I don't remember sending around a big stack of documents in advance. I do, though, remember uh, a moment at which both my brother and I pulled out some, uh, uh, some large envelopes of, of work and we talked uh, – uh, about those things on my brother's houseboat. I, I don't think it was necessarily planned. Uh, I'm quite sure it wasn't, but we both ha happened to have brought work along and we discussed it with him. We figured as long as we had the benefit of Steve's brilliance, um, we would talk to him about cases we were working on. Come on, honey, let's gather around. Let's start arguing legal cases. This, this sounds so relaxing. So, Mike, and, and, and here's the other thing. Now, I'm going to fast forward here a little bit because... Um, I had the great honor of serving as John Huntsman's uh, campaign manager when he ran for governor of Utah. He won. He became the 16th governor of Utah. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be named the chief of staff. And then uh, the governor made a great decision in um, with a little bit of pushing for me and hope for me that you would get it. Uh, that you became the general counsel. So you and I worked together. You're general counsel for the, the governor. I, I'm the chief of staff, which meant we spent an exorbitant amount of time together. I mean, way too much time together. And one of my favorite hey, stories. Not enough. Not enough in my view. I, yeah. I, I enjoyed every second of it. Well, I took it to the extremes because in 2005, I actually took a fall and a spill and broke my calcaneus bone, which is my heel. Heelbone, and and that meant I was I think nine months of no weight bearing, and and so uh, finally I had to take a number of weeks off for surgery and that sort of thing. But when I got going, Mike and I actually lived fairly close to each other, and you were kind enough to drive us to work and back each day. Now these jobs are not really nine to five types of jobs. You got to get in early and you leave pretty late. But I still remember it was so nice of you to drive me back and forth because this went on for months. This did this was not like once or twice. 
but I would get in the back seat of Mike Lee's car. We'd put the front seat down. I'd put my foot up so it'd be elevated. And we started this drive. And then a few minutes into the drive, he would say, I hope you don't mind, but I'm, I'm kind of listening to this. And he had a, a back then a cassette tape that he put in, and it was your dad arguing cases before the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, uh, there again, you know, um, these are the sorts of things that, that, that people do when they want to be entertained. Uh, it's a natural source of entertainment. Um, yeah, I remember that. Well, first of all, it, it was it was actually a lot of fun to get to drive you back and forth. And it gave me street cred when I got to Washington. Um, uh, you, you had been in Congress for a few years. And within a few years, you became this big committee chairman. And so I, I realized that uh, an immediate way to gain credibility on Capitol Hill was to inform people that I was Jason Chaffetz's former chauffeur. And uh, people really liked it when I introduced myself that way. But yeah, at the time, I, um, I don't know if I ever told you the, the, the reason why I was listening to those. I, I had been asked by uh, some people at Brigham Young University to do a presentation um, in which I summarized all of the cases that my father had argued before the Supreme Court. And so I was doing research on that, and this was how I was how I was preparing for it. But yeah, those were good times. I hope I gave adequate play-by-play color commentary on what he was arguing, and because uh, otherwise it could get fairly dull. But with that commentary by me, I'm sure it would have been interesting. Well, it's interesting because I learned a lot, you know. And at the time, I wasn't in Congress when we were doing that. But then when I got to Congress, ironically enough, I. I ended up being appointed to the, the House Judiciary Committee where I served as uh, on, on the judiciary. And I'm not an attorney, but I thought, nah, I've been to the Mike Lee School of, of Law. I think I have a pretty good sense, probably better than most of these judges sitting up here on this panel. And I say that with a big grain of salt, a big smile and <laughs> a grain of salt. It, 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 was, it was fascinating to do that, but I... I I really have a great love and a appreciation, and I hope uh, if, for those of you that are interested, we'll look back at the career and the, uh, the the life of Rex Lee because not only was he a solicitor general, which means you are a pretty talented attorney uh, getting to that point. You think Ronald Reagan, the newly minted president of the United States, he can pick anybody to, to have that role, and he chose Rex Lee. And... Then he served in that role, and but then he came back and he became the president of Brigham Young University. Now, that's the school that I went to, and I was uh, on the BYU football team. I was a place kicker, and I actually got to know Rex Lee as we go down memory lane here because the president of the university, Rex Lee, would come into the locker room, and my locker happened to be right near the 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 door that you go you know out to the field, and we had a big stadium, Lavelle Edwards. Stadium is, you know, 65,000 people. Anyway, President Lee would come in and, and he, he would talk to me and he asked if he could put his coat in my locker and use my locker. Well, I'm a kicker, right? So I don't, I don't, I don't get dirty and I don't have much stuff. So that's how I got to know your dad. That was kind of you to, to, to let him put his coat in there. I, I don't know if I ever knew that part of the story. I'm sure you took good care of it. Well, and then he, he was actually part of the law firm that my great uncle was part of. So the the number of ties that we have here, and then, you know, 
it's interesting in politics and I think just life in general, paths cross. And I remember I met you at the Utah County Republican Party convention and you came up and we were at this Huntsman booth and boy, the similarities in your voice and, and just look and everything. It's just, I started talking to you, but I didn't know you were related to, to Rex Lee. But somehow that came together, and boy, we've spent a lot of time between that meeting at the Utah County Republican Party event and uh, this Jason in the House podcast. Yeah, as I recall, we were we were talking there. I I, I was pretty sure I was going to be a, uh, a John Huntsman supporting delegate, and during that conversation, you closed the deal, uh, and uh, you did a fantastic job of representing him there. And um, yeah, I think the way it came up was at one point you said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a, uh, I'm an attorney. And um, uh, at that point, I think you brought up my dad and you said, I knew another guy who was a, an attorney that, you know, Rex Lee, who ran BYU was somebody I got to know. Are you in relation to him? And I said, yeah, he, he was my dad. So anyway, that was a great conversation. And Little did either of us know at that point that we had uh, we'd become great friends and get to work together. That was a fantastic. Well, and it kind of changed both of our lives, right? Because totally, John Huntsman wins. Now we're both in the governor's office. We both end up running for public office. You're a United States senator. I'm a former has been, and um, it's amazing how those little things kind of come together and and the impact that you're having. Um, but I, I've got to ask you now, you know, one of the toughest things, you got this beautiful, wonderful family. Uh, you got this great wife, uh, Sharon, that we love. Um, but it's hard being away so much, especially Utah's not exactly right next to Washington, D.C. So how do, you, how do you keep your roots? How do you keep your sanity having to be away from your family so much? Well, I do my best when I am home uh, to be with my family. It's it's not always easy because when when you're back in the state, you've got other responsibilities as well. But um, I try really hard to be the same person um, uh, that that I otherwise would have been had I not ever sought this office to be that person when I'm home with my family and and to spend large blocks of uninterrupted time with my wife and my kids. Uh, uh, you know, that's, that's sometimes easier said than done, but to me, that's been an important focus. You're listening to Jason in the house. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Mike Lee right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. All right, I want to I want to just go back one more time, then we're going to get to our our fun fast round. Um, but what what if you had to look back and say, look, okay, my dad was Solicitor General. We had a love of the law. My dad was talking about the Constitution a lot. But a lot of kids are sitting there, and their dad may talk about the Constitution and a lot and and the law, but it doesn't necessarily seep into their core. But you seem to have this 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 backbone, if you will, is the word I keep using, but this love and adherence to the Constitution and its purity 
how what why like where does that come from um so over time i've observed that government can be used either for good or for ill and that as our government particularly our federal government has gotten bigger it has caused a lot of other problems and I, I'm not sure if I can identify the exact moment in my life when I realized the convergence of all the issues that come with, with this, but it was sometime either in sometime between my late teenage years and my early twenties, when I realized the extent to which federalism and separation of powers had both been ignored. And it's not that we would suddenly create a, a sort of utopia if we started following those principles more clearly, but our, our government, our federal government would not cause as much harm as it does if we did that. And I, I also tend to believe that we'd foster economic growth. We would nurture an environment in which upward economic mobility would be more possible if we just followed those principles. So I, I'm not sure exactly what what lit the fire or what that moment was. But once I gained that understanding, I, it's like I couldn't shake it. And the more I saw um, as, a, as a young lawyer uh, with our government moving, it, it seemed to reinforce that hypothesis. It was then reinforced as uh, uh, further as I looked back at our history and look back at the fact that um, for the first 150 years or so of the existence of our republic, um, we were more faithful to both of those principles and we had uh, uh, unbelievable economic growth. And as much as anything, we had an unbelievable amount of upward economic mobility. Sure, we made mistakes along the way, but for the most part, those structural features of the Constitution were followed and they led us to better results. I think we can get back to that place, and that's what drives me. Well, you you, you pour your heart and soul out into serving in the in the United States Senate. You're, I know you're one of the hardest working people there. You've also written a couple books. Um, you wrote Our Lost Constitution, but I think uh, my favorite here in the, the books that you've written is the Written Out of History: The Forgotten Founders Who Fought Big Government. And there's some fascinating stories in there, everybody from Aaron Burr and how, his role and what he'd ended up doing in terms of our constitutional government. It, there's a really, this is, there are people in there that you have not seen in your history books that played such an important role, the foundation of our, of our, of our nation. But written out of history is one that I can tell you is more than worthy of, of getting. But you also have a, a more recent book. Yeah, uh, the, the most recent one I wrote um, came out about two years ago, uh, and it's called Our Lost Declaration. And so that, that book is intended to sort of complete the loop uh, there. And it talks about the fact that our, uh, the, the Constitution was, if you will, sort of a picture frame. It was the frame that set the scaffolding and the foundation for the operation of our government. But if you view that as the picture frame, the declaration is the picture. It's what's being protected. Hmm. I explained the, the origins of the thinking that went into the Declaration of Independence 
the fact that it was a, a, a product of sort of the Scottish Enlightenment and, um, and, and so many thinkers um, uh, from a few centuries ago who came to the realization that we have rights because we exist and, and because uh, God and nature's God uh, created us as free people. And that government is there to serve the people rather than the other way around. And so I explain, I go through the three sections of the declaration. You know, you've got the uh, statement of general principles at the beginning, you know, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, uh, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Then you have uh, what I call the indictment of King George III is the next section. And it outlines all the horrible things that, uh, that the crown uh, with the assistance of parliament had been doing to the colonies, sending forth swarms of officers to eat out their substance and um, behaving in a tyrannical way and uh, dissolving their legislatures, denying them representation in parliament um, and kicking down their doors, subjecting them to unreasonable searches and seizures and that sort of thing. And then there's the third section of it, which is the conclusion, which just says, okay, that's it. We're out. We're gone. When we understand the Declaration of Independence, we develop a better understanding for why our Constitution is written the way that it is and what it is that we're trying to protect. And it all focuses back, I believe, to uh, back on the, the inherent dignity and eternal value of the individual human soul. And that's why government needs to be the way that it's set up in our system, where the government works for the people and not the other way around, and where we protect the people against the inherent dangers associated with the excessive accumulation of power in the hands of the few. Well, I, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, I got to tell you, you're one of the most important voices in the conservative movement, and you can't engage and in, in understand what's happening in the United States in the United States Senate without understanding uh, where you are and the, these issues and this debate. And and these are some great books that you put forward as well that people can dive deeper and and understand. But Mike Lee, now it's time for the rapid questions, the fast questions, the ones that you really can't prepare for. I don't care how many times you've been to Lake Powell studying the Constitution and arguing cases with, you know, other attorneys. These questions will really get to your soul. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Favorite item at Taco Bell? The chalupa. I Mostly because I, say, I enjoy saying I'll have a chalupa. The burrito yeah. supreme is also a lovely item, but it's got to go with the chalupa. Bean burrito, no onions, add sour cream. That's also on the top three, but you're right. A chalupa, it's just fun <laughs> to say. All right. Favorite childhood crush? Oh, favorite childhood. I got to go with Marie Osmond. I mean, you know, <laughs> growing up in Utah. And, and, and many years later, I, I learned that Marie Osmond lived next door to my wife. And had a crush on my wife's older brother. I was so jealous when I found that out. Well, that, that you guys almost dated then. That that's pretty yeah. close. Practically, practically, yes, <laughs> practically. All right, that's good. All right, hidden talent that nobody knows about. 
the ability to play the fake bab- bagpipes. I'll, I'll, I'll show you sometime. Really? It's quite impressive. The air- well, yeah, it's, well, it's mimicking a bagpipe sound with that actual bagpipes. That's all right. That's a unique skill. You're right. And nobody knew about that. And that is unique because I don't know that anybody would want that talent, but you've got it. And that's good to know. We'll have to try it sometime. Your high school mascot. Thunderbird. Tim to you, Thunderbirds. Yeah, that's legit. You know, it's funny when you hear ask everybody. You want to do a good group game with everybody around. Go around the room and ask them all their high school mascots. It's pretty funny. Uh, and by the way, we had a high school here in northern Utah County. And they were putting together this new high school. And there's a lot of important parts where they need parent involvement, right? But the biggest meeting, the most contentious meeting was when the parents were allowed to participate. And there were hundreds of parents that showed up to have the argument about what should be the name of the school. And they ended up with the Lone Peak Knights. Because, you know, in Utah... We do knights. They were just everywhere. They, that that is our heritage here in in Utah. So I'm I'm so proud that they ended up with the knights. But boy, was that a fight! I remember that when that was happening. Woo! All right, it, it uh, just it's not that cool either. But that's that's. I think they being a knight better. is pretty cool. It's better it's better than being a lot of things. I mean, we got we got some other names, particularly here in Utah. But we got some other names that I, I'm always fascinated by. What their mascot Thunderbird is a pretty pretty legit. All right, first concert you ever attended? Um, the Beach Boys at the Marriott Center in Provo in 1979. All right, that's Beach Boys. I like that. That's good. All right, person you'd most like to meet, dead or alive? Ooh, dead or alive. Um, Edmund Burke. Uh, he's a member of parliament, um, an advocate of, of freedom, um, 18th century, really cool guy. Really cool. Well, interesting. You know, Lee Zeldin was on with us, I think last week and he, he, he said he wanted to meet Moses. I thought that was a pretty good answer too, but I like yours. That's good. All right. Pineapple on pizza. Um, I tolerated it for years. Um, and now I just have a great disdain for it. It wasn't until, until, you know, I was never a big fan of it, but when I was with somebody who would order it, uh, I didn't complain much. Then one day I realized, wait a minute, this is, this is fruit. Why are we eating a fruit on top of a pizza? A sweet fruit, no less, that's been baked in cheese. Doesn't seem right. So, I'm, no, I'm a no. That's why we're such a big fan of Senator Lee, because Pineapple on pizza just ain't right. It's just, it's wet. They don't need to do that. I like pineapple. I love pizza, but they don't go together. That's not the Reese's peanut butter cup of pizzas. That's that's just the wrong direction. All right. It's like peanuts and bubble gum, but you should never consume them together. Gross. (laughs) That's that's the best example. I like that. All right. Most embarrassing moment. Oh, man. There are a lot of those. Um. So we have a friend, while you think about that, we have a friend, Mike and I, his name is Mike Maurer, and Mike Maurer, and I use his line all the time, he likes to say, when you say to Mike, Mike Maurer, what's your, what's your most embarrassing moment? And he'll say, 6th through 12th grade. <laughs> and uh, that's a pretty good answer. But what was your single most embarrassing moment that 
pops to the top of your head, Mayor Mike? Okay, so when I was in about um, uh, fifth or sixth grade, I was in church one day, and I went up to use the restroom. And when I came out of the restroom, um, there was a cute girl there who I, who, who I knew, who I saw in the foyer of the church, was talking to her, hey, how's it going? You know, it was in the middle of church, so we didn't really have much of a chance to chat. But I was walking past thinking, oh, yeah, I nailed that moment. That was a great interaction. And I looked down, and um, part of my shirt was poking out of my zipper, mm. which uh, apparently hadn't completely been taken care of and closed before I walked out of the restroom. That was a horrible moment. It's probably the reason you didn't go out with with Marie Osmond. But, um, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's this a was, pretty embarrassing this- moment. This was not Marie Osmond, uh, but um, uh, but a very but cute just girl. as cute, evidently. Yeah. Yes. All right. Um, last time you dressed up for Halloween, what did you dress up as? I dressed up as William Howard Taft uh, during his years as Solicitor General. I was wearing a morning suit and a top hat. It was fantastic, <laughs> and of course. Everyone recognized me and fully understood the distinction uh, 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 of dressing up as William Howard Taft, the Solicitor General version. <laughs> and I'm sure everybody just noticed that and said, oh, look who's here. Mr. Taft is in the room. Haven't we all done that? All right. That's see what I'm getting to, folks. You learn a lot by what people dress up as for Halloween. All right. Cats or dogs? Uh, dogs definitely i'm terribly allergic to cats yeah me too coke or pepsi usually coke but unlike most coke fans i don't hate pepsi at all oh that's interesting all right last one worst thing you did as a child um so um on one occasion i decided it would be a good idea it'd be really fun in fact to um lash several explosives, namely fireworks together, um, and then lash their fuses together to make them one explosive device and uh, plant said explosive device in my sister's Barbie van and uh, blew up uh, a, a table. It fit ever so perfectly inside of this table that she had inside of the Barbie van. Fortunately, no damage was sustained to the van itself, but the table uh was a complete loss uh, <laughs> it's, it's not very nice of me but it was really cool at the moment yeah you know uh there are a lot of young little boys myself included whose most embarrassing moments usually involve fireworks <laughs> one one of mine did i i was i was at this cul-de-sac i was in southern california i was probably 10 and uh there was there was there were lemon trees or I had access to lemons. So I got some lemons and I went to this cul-de-sac and I had these firecrackers and they were, you know, just, they would explode. And I thought that was cool and fun. So I'm down there and I would wrap this lemon and I'd, I'd poke the, the firecrackers in there and then I'd light it and then I'd take it cause it was on fire and I'd throw it and it would explode. And I thought that was great until I had one in my hand. I'm just about to light it, and I hear this whoop, whoop, and I turn around, and there's a police car. And I am, like, so red-handed, 10-year-old kid with a lemon, firecrackers, and a lighter. 
And these police officers were pretty cool to me, but they made it be known that that probably wasn't in the best interest of our community. And I it stuck with me ever since. So every decision you made after that momentous event where you were fortunate enough not to get arrested uh, has been in the best interest of the community. And that's the great thing about those early encounters. That's fantastic. Got, got me going in the right direction. And I think you've learned a lesson with your Barbie van blowing, trying to blow it up as well. So I'm, I'm glad to be clear. It, it was not, it was not my Barbie van, not to suggest that there would have been anything <laughs> wrong with it. It had been, it was my sister's and I felt the need to blow something up that day. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Senator Mike Lee from the great state of Utah, one of the most influential voices in the conservative movement. I really do thank you for joining us today, and I love love hearing the stories and, and chatting with you. So thanks for joining the Jason in the House podcast, and uh, we do appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jason. Good to talk to you. Again, I can't thank uh, Senator Lee enough. Appreciate our daughter coming on and sharing a story. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I need you to rate it. need you to to say how much you liked it, the, those little stars at the end, that those are kind of important. But I want to conclude today with a bit of inspiration. So our inspiration today is uh, from the Berg Steakhouse in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It, it was Saturday, and according to WATE, according to one of the owners there, um, the co-owner of Berg Steakhouse, they had a customer come in, and he came in with his daughter, evidently. They came in and had lunch. They loved it so much, they came back and had dinner. But what makes this inspirational here is that, um, you know what, this guy evidently uh, was terminally ill, uh, wasn't doing well, but he was there with his daughter. And not only did they love it, but they bought meals for other people, and they left a, a $1,000 tip, a very nice gesture for people the guys there, terminally ill, having a great meal at the Berg Steakhouse. I hope to be able to go sometime because they're obviously some exceptionally nice people. And I'm glad the way they were treated. And I'm, it's just inspirational to me that here this man is. I don't know who he is, but he's there with his daughter and leaves such a generous tip. That, that just paying it forward, helping everybody else out. To me, that's inspirational. And I hope it's inspirational to you as well. Well, again, thank you for listening to the Jason and the House podcast. You can find more from the Fox News Podcast Network over at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love it, rate it, review it. We would appreciate it. And we'll be back with more next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been Jason in the House. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.